You know, we take for granted, most of us anyway, the blessings of being a believer, don't we? And what I mean is we, most of us forget what it was like to be an unbeliever and how hopeless that life really was. I mean, maybe you got saved as a little kid and you don't remember what that was like. I did not get saved as a little kid, and I do remember. And it was awful. It was miserable. We were hopeless, helpless. We hated God. We hated other people. We were gripped by fear. We were controlled by sin, living in strife and conflict. Many of us were always at war with other people. You see, my point is we forget that as unbelievers, we were not equipped to deal with the real issues of life. We were not. We thought we were. We were not. We were lost. We were blind. We were bankrupt. We were clueless. We were absolutely foolish, filled with despair, clutching at straws, grinding our fingers down to the bone in search of meaning, not knowing at the time that we needed supernatural power to handle even the most basic issues in life. We were a total mess. And had God not intervened by his grace, we would either be in hell as we speak, or we would still be stuck in the hopeless bog that is spiritual death. Those are the facts. But you see, Everything changed when God made us born again, didn't it? We were raised to life. Light broke in the soul. We put our faith in Christ. And in that moment, get this, we gained access to a supernatural power and hope to handle the troubles of a fallen world. Not that the troubles went away when we got saved. I mean, they are all still there. Sin struggles, people struggles, fear on every side. The difference is, the difference now is faith in Christ now gives us access to the power we need to handle those things in a way that puts Christ on display. That's exactly what John gives us in our text this morning. Let's call them the fringe benefits of saving faith. Meaning that in addition to salvation and eternal life and the riches of redemption in Christ, we also get the power to navigate the struggles in a fallen world broken by sin. At every single level of life, for every dilemma of life and the soul, what God supplies in his son is absolutely sufficient. There's nothing that we don't need that is not already, nothing that we do need, not already provided by faith in Christ. Again, it's not that life is easy. In fact, God may see fit to bring even harder things into our lives. It's just that now, now we have total access to everything we need to thrive in a fallen world groaning for redemption. That's one of the benefits of saving faith, which is what this entire last chapter is all about. You remember that John finishes his letter by telling you everything you need to know about faith in Jesus Christ, what it is, where it comes from, how you got it, what you should believe, and how you know what you believe is true. And the reason why John ends the letter this way is because this is the perfect way to end a letter. It makes total sense. Chapter 5 is like an epilogue, an epilogue on the meaning and the, the nature and the essence of faith. You know that for four chapters, John has made us wrestle and squirm in our seats with really hard questions that force us to answer if our faith is authentic or if our faith is counterfeit, right? Then all of a sudden in chapter 5, he turns a corner. And he digs a layer deeper because you see the best way to tell if your faith is real is by diving beneath the surface and finding out what faith in Christ actually is. That's what chapter 5 is all about. And this morning, John doesn't merely give us life skills. He gives us faith skills. I mean, Dr. Phil's got nothing on the Apostle John and, and his God-given insights on how to navigate the, the tricky issues and the trenches of life. You see, like a good biblical counselor, John is going to shepherd us this morning in some really practical ways because he wants you and I and the church to whom he was writing not just be able to de define our faith, but to apply. 
apply our faith. So you've heard of life hacks and life skills. How about faith hacks and faith skills? Because that's exactly what John is going to give us. Let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see from our text three effects. And actually, you know what? I changed my mind. Let's call these benefits. Three benefits of saving faith that help us navigate life and ministry in a fallen world. That's where we're going. Three benefits of saving faith that help us navigate life and ministry in a fallen world. And the first benefit of saving faith is this. Number one, there is certainty of salvation. There is certainty of salvation. Because if you happen to live in the first century and you just happen to be a friend of the Apostle John, and John told you that he was going to write a letter to a church or some churches that he had planted, and if you said, that's great, John, what's the letter about? What's the purpose of the letter? What's the aim and goal of the letter? What is the letter designed to do? And if he said, sit down, let me read it to you, you would wait until the 13th verse of the 5th chapter before he told you why he wrote this letter in the first place. You might think, well, that's kind of weird. Why wait so long? But you see, what it really is is clever. It's like a dramatic plot twist. This, this aha moment, this, this big, fat, giant therefore that makes everything else in the letter make absolute sense. And so look at verse 13. Here is the reason for why John just had to put pen to paper and write this letter. Look what he says. He says, these things I wrote to you. Why? Why did you, John? So that you who believe in the name of the Son of God would know, you would know this, that you have eternal There it is. Did you hear it? Assurance is the issue. Confidence is the issue for John. Knowing for certain that you do, in fact, have eternal life is why John said he wrote these things, which means every single thing in this is designed to help you differentiate between authentic faith and fakey faith. Those with authentic faith will be challenged, of course, but confirmed in their faith. Those with fakey faith, they're usually going to respond in one of three ways. They'll be disturbed, they'll be defensive, or they're going to blow it off and just go about their day. The question is, how have you been responding to John's shepherding? As John has forced us to examine our lives and be brutally honest about the secret moments of our lives, I mean, you can't help but be convicted, right? You can't help but be convicted by what he says. But on this side of things, five chapters later, do you have the assurance of eternal life that John's talking about? Do you have that? And what I mean is, is your faith corroborated by the imperfect but ever-increasing evidence that validates your claims? Because if your faith is real, there should be evidence. And yet, what does this evidence look like? And again, when you stand back and you look at the letter as a whole, it is clear and unmistakable. True, authentic, saving faith in Christ reveals itself in truth, in obedience, and love. Meaning... If you believe the truth, you obey God's word, and you love other people, those are the signs that your faith is not a hoax, but is genuine and real. The question is, do you see those things in your life? Truth, obedience, and love. And when you don't see those things, do you want to see them? When you don't see those things in your life, do you see broken-hearted sorrow and repentance and a desire to do them? What I'm asking is, when you probe beneath the skin and the watching eyes of human beings, when God can see you, the question is, what is it that you love and live for the most? Because that's the question that John wants you to answer. But again, verse 13 is the pinnacle. This is the point. This is the apex of the entire letter. And in it, John displays three components of assurance. Three components of assurance, meaning three things that you have to have for real, authentic, biblical assurance. We saw these last week. Look at this. They're all in your notes here. First, for assurance, 
there has to be the activity of faith. The activity of faith. You, you got to believe. Look what he says in verse 13. These things I wrote to you. Why? So that you who believe in the name of the Son of God would know that you have eternal life. See, that the non-negotiable condition to gain eternal life is that you got to believe. To put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that sounds like baby-level theology until you open the panel and you look at the intricacies of what faith in Christ actually is. Because what it is not is a mere change of mind or mere adherence to a set of historical facts, although that's true too. Rather, true, authentic faith in Christ is by its very nature three profound realities. All of these are in your notes. There is an admission, faith is submission, and faith is a transaction. Let's look at all these. First, faith is an admission. Admission, you see, faith is not a work with which you barter with God for salvation. Rather, faith is the broken-hearted admission that you were bankrupt and that the only contribution that you had to your own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. Faith is an admission. Have you admitted this morning? Second, faith is submission. It's a submission. You see, faith is not inviting Christ into your life. Or asking him into your heart. Rather, faith is a thirsty submission. A surrender and a submission to the one who alone satisfies the soul. To the one who alone made the solution for sins by the sacrifice of himself. It is submission. Have you submitted your life? Finally, number three, faith is a transaction. It's a transaction, meaning, meaning, it's not just a change of opinion. It is a God-awakened union with Christ where our lives become so inseparably intertwined with his that he lives his own life in and through us. Which is exactly what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Do you remember? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The question is, do you have this kind of faith? Have you admitted? Have you submitted? Have you been transacted? But second, for real assurance, there has to be the object of faith. The object of faith, meaning... You, you gotta, there, there is something to believe in. And John tells us exactly what it is, who it is. And who it is is the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And when John says the Son of God, he means God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He alone is the object of saving faith. Outside of him is the wrath and judgment that we all deserve. But you see, the thing is, God made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. He made a way for sinners to be not guilty without dropping the charges. And how he did that was by providing a substitute to stand in the place of hell-deserving sinners and executing his furious, righteous wrath on that substitute as if he were the one who committed all those sins. And the sin-bearing substitute for sinners like us is none other than the Son of God himself. The divine Son who came to earth to make sons and daughters of God through the payment of an adoption fee, namely his very blood. And I just need to pause here and I, I need to say this because I know that some of you secretly fidget and tremble in your souls. Some of you fret and worry if God holds past or present sins against you, don't you? And yet this letter settles the issue. It settles the issue. Because you remember chapter 2, verse 1, don't you? It says, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
The one who was the propitiation for our sins. And what that means is he not only died for you 2,000 years ago, but right this minute he stands before Father. Right this minute pleading the case for your innocence. And the evidence to which he appeals for your innocence is not your performance, but his sin-bearing death in your place. I died for them, Father. I died for that. Accept my payment on their behalf, Father. You chose them. I died for them. Now apply the proceeds of my death to, your, to their account and forgive them, Father. And every single time the Father exuberantly accepts the advocacy of his Son. Forgiven. reconciled, righteous. That is the one whom you believe, if in fact you do believe. But third and finally, there's the glorious result of our faith. Again, there's the activity of faith, there's the object of faith, there is the glorious result of our faith, which is none other than eternal life itself. Look at the end of verse 13, he says, these things I wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you would know that you have eternal life. And there it is, eternal life. And last week we settled the issue, didn't we? Eternal life is not merely avoiding death or, really, or living a really long time. Rather, eternal life is life how we were created to live. And when you stand back at the New Testament as a whole becomes clear that eternal life is nothing less than the enjoyment of Trinitarian glory forever, meaning it is everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment of the triune God as our highest treasure forever. That is eternal life because, you see, this is why Christ died. Not merely to get sinners forgiven or merely, merely even to get them to heaven, but to get them to God. That is why John wrote this letter. That you who believe in the name of the Son of God would know, that you would know that you have eternal life. You have it. It's yours. It's certain. It's irrevocable. It's paid for by Jesus Christ. And you see, the implications, the implications of assurance of eternal life are staggering, aren't they? I mean, if this is true, if eternal life is really true, and it is, then that means death is defeated. Guilt is gone. The king is coming. Paradise will be restored, and God is going to win it all in the end. And if that is true, and it is true, then that radically, radically changes the lenses through which we view the world and our lives in this world, doesn't it? It has to must. Think about it. With assurance of eternal life, we are freed from greed and the fear of death, and we are liberated to live our lives in reckless abandon to Jesus Christ, aren't we? You see, assurance of eternal life, it removes every obstacle that kept us from living a radical life recklessly abandoned to Jesus Christ, because guess what? No matter how you die or when you die, one day God will raise us from the dead just as if we had never died. And with sinless, glorified bodies, we will co-rule the kingdom with Jesus Christ and anything that we ever lost or suffered for his sake will be restored 10,000 times over. That is what eternal life does. And so you understand what this means is that, like I said last week, that sin is illogical and fear is irrational. And so the question becomes, what are the illogical sins and the irrational fears that eternal life can free you from this very week? Which brings us to the second benefit. The second benefit of saving faith. Number two, confidence in supplication confidence in supplication. Meaning that when we have saving faith in Christ, we have confidence in our 
prayers, our supplications before God. And you know that in America, we make a really, really big deal about free speech, don't we? Make a really big deal out of, about that, and, and that's fine. That's, that's good. That's what we were promised. That's part of the deal. We, we, we should care about maintaining that right. We're not just going to hand that over as if it doesn't mean anything, because it does. And yet, important though freedom of speech may be, as believers, we have a blood-bought freedom of speech before the God of the universe that puts our American right to say what we want to absolute shame. You can see it in verses 14 and 15. Look at the text. He says, and this is the boldness that we have with him. That if we should ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we should ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, do you see the question between this, the connection between this and verse 13? Because of our faith in Christ, we have access to eternal life. And it is precisely because of that access that we have confidence before God that he not only hears what we ask, but gives us what we ask. You can see it in the text, look at verse 14. John says, and because of this eternal life in his son, therefore, therefore, this is the boldness that we have before him, that if we should ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, did you hear that? We have boldness with God. We have boldness with God. I know your version says confidence. And that's true too, but the word literally means boldness. Boldness before the living God. John said the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 21, and here he says it again. And every time he says this, it kind of jars me with how strong this language is. And to be clear, this is not a brash, arrogant, rude, disrespectful, or irreverent boldness. Right? We, we, don't, we don't talk to God like he owes us anything. We don't boss him around like some minimum wage errand boy who, just, who should just be grateful that he's got a job. No, this is still the God of the universe we're talking about here. This is the God who caused the universe to exist, who spoke galaxies into existence, who saved us from eternal hell. And yet, nevertheless, there is a genuine, bona fide boldness that faith in Christ grants us to have with the living God. And yet the boldness to do what exactly? To do what? To ask him for things. And not just for things, but for anything, according to his will. Which means John is talking about prayer here, isn't he? He's talking about prayer and supplication and asking God for things that you need as a fallen person living in a fallen world. And yet, and yet, what we must never, ever lose sight of here is that this boldness before the living God was bought with a hefty price, wasn't it? Namely, the sin-bearing death of the Son of God himself, the right to approach the throne of God without knocking, as it were, and just ask him for things, required the death of God himself in human flesh. And so what John is telling us here, get this, is that we have a blood-bought, God-given, security clearance right to approach the throne of grace and just ask for anything that we need. Anything. Here's a blank check. Here are endless blank checks of prayer. Just fill them out and ask for what you need. Because as John says at the end of verse 14, akue hemon, he hears us. Meaning his auditory senses don't merely just pick up the sound waves, but that we have his undivided attention. And as verse 15 says, God answers. He gives us what we ask. The problem is, the problem is, this doesn't add up, does it? This isn't true. God doesn't give us what we ask, and we know that because we lived it. 
There were things that we asked for in our lives, really, really important things that we asked for, unbelievably important things like the job we never got and the healing that never came and the baby that didn't survive. And yet we asked and we pleaded and we begged and God didn't grant those things. Sometimes he did. Many times he didn't. So who does John think he is making a promise that we know and that he knows that God is never going to actually answer? You see what this is? is a biblical theological tension. And you see, the tension that's raised here by John's claim is beautifully resolved by the all-important qualification that the prayers God always answers without exception are those prayers that are asked according to his will. Look what he says, verse 14. If we should ask anything, here it is, according to his will, he hears us. There's the qualification. The anything that God will hear and answer is when and only when those prayers are asked according to the will of God. The problem is, the problem is, we don't know what the will of God is. Or do we? Or do we? And the answer is we do, most definitely. And we don't. You see, what I mean is there are two aspects of God's will described in the Bible. Two aspects of God's will described in the Bible, one of which you are responsible to know and the other of which you're not. And you see, the confusion in our lives about the will of God is owing to our failure to differentiate between these two aspects of God's will. You see, first, there is what's known as God's will of decree. God's will of decree. It's very important. You see, these are the events that God has predestined and ordained in eternity past. This is what he has willed to come to pass in the pages of history. You can't know it, and you won't know it until it actually happens in real life. This is not the will that John is talking about. What he is talking about, however, is what's known as God's will of command. The will of command. This is the will of God that you can know, and you must know. And the more you meditate on Holy Scripture... You will know. You see, when it comes to the will of God, that is what he demands, what he desires, there's no guesswork involved. There's, there's no game to play here. This is not some mystical, hard-to-find hard Easter egg hunt. This is not some magic eight-ball guessing game. This is not some mysterious Indiana Jones, interpret the sacred symbols found in your circumstances kind of game here. It is not any of that. Rather, rather, the will of God for your life that you can and must know is the eight. 100,000 word will of God found in the pages of Holy Scripture. That is the will that John is talking about. Don't you see everything that God desires, everything that God demands, everything that he already wants to give you in his son is the will that John is talking about. And John says anything, literally anything that you ask according to his will revealed in the text of scripture, God hears it and he answers it. That is the promise. That is the guarantee. That is the boldness that we have on the throne of God. That's why John says in verse 14 that when we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The ears of God perk up, as it were, when we ask according to his will revealed in his word. Put it this way, when we ask according to the will of God revealed in the word, we have the full sovereign attention of the living God and not just his attention, but his intention to answer everything we've asked. Which is exactly what he says in verse 15, look at the text. 
we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we should ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. The magnitude of that promise is simply staggering, isn't it? When we ask for what God has already expressed in his word that he wants to give us, he doesn't just take it into consideration. John says, no, it is done. It is yours. It is certain. Anything that God demands and desires and already wants to give you is just there for the asking. Can you you feel how encouraging this is? The real question is, have you taken God up on his offer? Have you put this to the test? Do you see the earth-shattering potential of what could happen in your life for the great commission and the glory of God if we actually pray this way? The real question is, do you increasingly know what the will of God is? Do you know what God demands from his word? Do you know what God desires in his word? Do you know what God promises in his word? What I'm asking is, are you daily immersed in this book in sacred contemplation? Because what God demands and what he desires and what he promises in the text, that is the will of God. So you see the implications, right? That the faith skills that John wants to give us, lots, lots of them. Let me give you two. First, it's clear here that John doesn't merely want us to pray more, but to pray better. And by better, I mean pray the scriptures. Make the word of God your prayer back to God. Not that you can't use your own words. Or ask for things not in the Bible because you totally can and you should. But you see, the word of God is the will of God that God already wants to give you. Which means the one who reads well, prays well. The one who reads much, prays much. The one who meditates is the one who supplicates because because this is the desires of God in the word of God. Prayed back to God for the glory of God. And so when it comes to prayer, go for broke. Pray with an open Bible in front of you. Scour the Bible and ask for the moon and make the will of God in the word of God the content of your prayers because these are the prayers that God has promised and guaranteed that he is going to answer. Second faith skill implied in the text. You can totally tell, you can totally tell that if we didn't have this boldness and courage already to pray to God so boldly, you can totally tell that John is trying to create that within us, isn't he? He wants to unleash us to pray. You can tell that he wants to create a Bible-saturated faith filled people who pray the radical, earth-shattering prayers from the pages of Holy Scripture, that he wants us to be a people who search the Scriptures and ask God to do exactly what he has promised that he will do, because God will grant everything that he has promised. He will. But he will do so in answer to the prayers of his people. And so the question for you this morning is is not just do you pray, but have you maximized the staggering potential of what God has designed prayer to be in our lives? Meaning, do you pray the will of God in the word of God? Because I'm just going to level with you here. No matter the issue, no matter the struggle, no matter the hard-to-reach sin that never seems to go away, if you ask according to his will in the word, God answers and provides everything you ask. That brings us finally to the third benefit. The third benefit of saving faith, number three, counsel for a situation. Counsel for a situation. 
And I want you to notice how smooth John is, how much sense he actually makes. I want you to notice the progression from verse 13 to here. In verse 13, he talked about the assurance of eternal life, right? Verses 14 and 15, he moves next to boldness in prayer because of our assurance of eternal life. Agreed? But speaking of prayer, he gives a very particular application of prayer to a very particular situation that all of you have experienced. Look at verses 16 and 17, which, by the way, these are among the most debated and discussed verses, not only in 1 John, but even in the entirety of the New Testament. So buckle up. Gird up your loins here. Grab your machete of interpretation because we are going to hack our way through the jungle here. Verses 16 and 17. And let me do this. Let me give you a very literal translation of the Greek text because I think it's going to clear up any fog there might be about what John means. This is not what your Bible says. This is from the Greek. It's a little stiff. Here it is. If anyone should see his brother sinning sin, not towards death, he shall ask and God shall give to him life, to those who are sinning not towards death. There is sin towards death. I am not saying that you should ask about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not towards death. And there it is. There's a faith skill in there that John wants you to know, and it's a, it's a really handy one at that. Let's take this a piece at a time. This is in your notes. Let's begin first with a scenario. With a scenario. Look at verse 16. John says, if anyone should see his brother, again, literally, sinning sin, not towards death. Again, I know that your Bible says it differently than that, but just hang with me. Notice that John begins with the word if. If anyone should see his brother committing sin. That means, that word if means that John is presenting a hypothetical, not so hypothetical scenario where a believer sees something in another believer's life, namely sin. You see that? And the reason why I say this is not so hypothetical is because this is bound to happen. It's going to happen. It has already happened to you. And it's going to happen again. And the verb see there, look at the text. The verb see there in the text is really important because the tense of the verb indicates a specific occurrence. Right? This is not a matter of like personal suspicion, like, oh, man, I think that guy's really into something nasty. No, it's not that at all. It's an observed fact. You saw it in real time. You were an eyewitness to sin in somebody's life. Whose life exactly? Who is John talking about? Is this a believer or an unbeliever? Look at the text. If anyone should see his brother sinning, committing a sin. Is that his brother? You know what that is? That's code for Christian. This is not an unbeliever. This is not a make-believer. This is an actual blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ in whose life something concerning is witnessed. What is witnessed? What is, what is this uh, brother doing in his life exactly? And John tells us that the scenario is one Christian seeing another Christian, your Bible says, committing a sin not leading to death. That's really interesting to me because you see, I'll have you know that this is, this is a unique construction. There, there, there are no other verses with this exact wording anywhere else in the New Testament. This is completely unique, which tells us that the secret to its meaning is found right here in John's letter. And yet the question is, what is a sin not leading to death? What is that? Well, it's easy. It's super easy what that is. You know what it is? It's the opposite of a sin that does lead to death which John mentions. Look at the end of verse 16. If anyone should see his brother committing a sin not leading to death, look at the end, there is a sin leading to death. Okay, so what is the scenario? What is a sin that does and does not lead to death? That's the question. And before I answer that, let me just tell you that cryptic though all this may sound, this very situation that John describes 
all of you have experienced. You understand, this is a, this is a situation here that's churchy, meaning this happens in local churches all the time, to which you have personally been a witness. The question is, what are the two sins that John described? And, and what do you do in each of these situations? And I'll have you know that scholars throughout the centuries have had a field day, have been nothing short of creative, and they're trying to figure out what is a sin that does and does not lead to death. And if you look at your notes, I even made a chart for you with the summary of the views, question marks, where they don't say or they don't make it clear. First, the Catholic Church wrongly says that this is venial versus mortal sins. That is, a slight sin or a sin that will probably send you to hell forever, like murder or adultery. That's not in the Bible. That's wrong. You shouldn't listen to that, but that's what the Catholic Church says. Others think that John is alluding, that he is nodding to the Levitical law, and the distinction that's made there between unintentional and intentional sins. Some try to say that the sin that leads to death is the unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the spirit or apostasy, or a sin that is literally going to kill you, i.e. Ananias and Sapphira, case in point. The problem, the problem with every single one of those views is that they miss both the grammar and the context. Those views miss the grammar and the context. First, the grammar. And I'll just have you know, this is going to be really technical, but this is going to be so worth it for us. The grammar. Every time John uses the word sin in these two verses, it's missing the definite article, the, in the Greek. It's not the sin that leads to death, which is why our Bible's translated as a sin that leads to death problem with translating it that way is that it gives the impression that John has a particular sin, has particular sins in mind, which he doesn't. He doesn't have particular sins in mind. You see, in Greek, a noun without the article doesn't make it indefinite. A sin? No. In Greek, a noun without the article emphasizes the quality of the noun. In other words, it's not any one particular sin. It's a kind of sinning that John has in mind. It's a pattern of sinning that he has in mind. Literally, the Greek text says, I'll read it again, if anyone should see his brother sinning sin not towards death. This is a kind of sinning. This is a pattern of sinning, which you notice does not lead to death, or very literally, not towards death. Meaning what? Well, that brings us to the context of the letter. Because the only other time in this entire letter that John used the word death was in chapter 3, verse 14, when it referred to spiritual and eternal death. Therefore, important word, therefore, when John describes a brother sinning not towards death. Get this. He is describing a kind of sinning, a pattern of sinning in a believer's life that although serious, because all sin is serious, does not necessarily call their salvation into question. In other words, in the context of this believer's life as a whole, this particular kind of sinning does not indicate a trajectory headed towards destruction. In other words, their life as a whole displays genuine patterns of life and repentance and growth and transformation and increasing conformity to Jesus Christ. They're highly imperfect and they've got their struggles, but on display in their life as a genuine hunger for Christ and holiness and his word that can only be explained by the miracle of regeneration. And this kind of sinning that you see in the context of their life as a whole does not call their salvation into question. Does that make sense? It's a tendency, a pattern of sin. This, this particular kind of sinning in their life for which they need to repent and change doesn't call their salvation into question. It's a pattern of sin to which you are a witness and for which you desperately need to pray, which is exactly what John says. 
Look at verse 16, and this brings us to the supplication. John says, if anyone should see his brother sinning sin, and again, not a particular sin, it's any kind of sinning, sinning sin, not towards death, he shall ask, and God shall give life to him, to those who are sinning not to death. And you see it, right? There's the connection with verses 14 and 15. Do you see it? Prayer and asking God for help with something. And in particular, praying for another believer in who's got something in your life to which you are personally a witness. And if you are a witness of that, John says, he, that is you, are responsible to ask and pray for them. That's the scenario. And, and I know, I know that your Bible says you ask and God gives them life, right? Do you see that? I just want you to know that the word God is not actually in the Greek text there. It's not. I think John means you are the subject of both verbs. You pray and you give them life through your prayers on their behalf. And by life, John means repentance. John means repair. John means restoration. You, your ministry is to restore sinning believers to the fullest enjoyment of their life in Christ through your prayers on their behalf or Obviously, God is the one who does that through you. And the question here is, do you, I mean, do you feel the weight of what John is saying here? He literally just got done telling us that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is the will of God. Praying for the sin struggles of other believers is the will of God, which means if you pray for them, you restore life to them. You are an agent of holiness and sanctification to the believers in your life. Don't you see, if the sin of other believers is hurting you, or in most cases, driving you absolutely crazy, it is because you have not prayed for them. Or you have not prayed for them nearly often enough. You need to pray. Persistently, you need to pray. When you see sin in someone's life, when you see sin in my life, you need to pray. You need to plead with God to intervene, to provide the awareness and the power to overcome sin patterns not leading to death. You know why? You know why? Because your prayers on their behalf are the means that God has ordained to bring growth and transformation into their lives. You and I are intercessory life givers to one another through our prayers on behalf of one another, which means, which means, if you don't pray, they don't grow. Listen to what Martin Luther told his church in a letter. He was on the run for his life, hiding in the Wartburg castle, trying to translate the Bible into German. He said this in July 13th. 1520. I sit here at ease in the tower, hardened and unfeeling. Alas, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this. I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I am a fire in the flesh. Laziness, illness, sleepiness, here it is. It is perhaps that you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days I have written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap, he says, which turns out, we find out it was constipation. He says, I really cannot stand it any longer. Pray for me. I beg you, 
for in my seclusion here, I am submerged in sins. I am a fire in the flesh because you have ceased praying for me. The prophet Samuel said this to sinning Israel fresh on the heels of them doing something wicked and stupid. They said, pray for us. And you know what he said in reply? Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's what we mean at this church when we say redemptive relationships. Owning, owning, owning the spiritual health of one another as our top priority. It's not a game. The stakes are so high. And our first defense when we see sin in one another's life, it's not to gossip. It's not to tell anyone else about. It's not to get your feelings hurt, throw a hissy fit, and leave. It's not to get bitter and withdraw. It is to pray. It is to pray because your prayers on their behalf are the means God has given to bring about holiness and transformation in their lives. The question is, do you pray about the sins of other believers in your life? Do you pray about that? Are there particular people in your life that you see something, maybe not the most earth-shattering thing in the world, but you see something that needs help, and do you pray for them? Do you pray about the sins of other believers? Do you have anyone in your life right now that, that, this, that you're thinking about this? Or turn it around. Turn it around this way. Do you, as James 5.16 says, confess your own sins to one another so that people can pray for you and you be healed? Don't you see that one of our greatest ministries in this church is to impart life to one another through our supplications on their behalf? Did you know that your prayers are the means to God sanctifying and transforming my life and my prayers for you to do the same? Now you know, and you must pray. There's one final order of church business that we've got to deal with here, and that brings us to the sin to death. The sin to death. It's my last page, by the way. Plenty of time. The sin to death. And you know, Twitter to me, Twitter is a, it's kind of a funny phenomenon to me, right? Because you sit at your desk and you, you type out a sentence. And then that one sentence has the potential to set off a firestorm of controversy that the whole world can hear about. I think that's very interesting. And in verse 16, John tweeted, as it were, there is sin towards death. It's four words in the Greek. Four words. And it has set off a firestorm of controversy for the last 2,000 years. And yet I think it's clear. Weighty, but clear. Because if there is a kind of sinning not towards death, meaning that sin in the context of their life doesn't call their salvation into question, if there is that kind of sinning, then a sin towards death is exactly the opposite. And again, it's not a sin. It's not any particular sin. Again, it's a kind of sinning. Or perhaps better, it is a particular attitude and posture towards sin that does, in fact, call their salvation into question. In fact, in fact, the fact that John doesn't call this person a brother at all, I believe indicates that this is not a Christian. This is not a believer he's talking about. They profess to be one. They claim to be authentic. But the habits and patterns of sin that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify gives every indication that despite what they claim, they are actually unbelievers headed towards destruction. John has talked about these people in the entirety of his letter. Do you remember? They claim to be in the light. They walk in the darkness. They claim to know the Son, but they don't obey his word. They claim to be children of God, born again, but how they actually live is like children of the devil, dead in sin. 
This is who he means. This is who he means. A person who might claim to be a believer, but the sin, their attitude towards sin in their life clearly indicates that this person is not born again. And look at the breathtaking statement that John makes about this person. There is sin not towards death. Here it is. And I do not say that you should pray about that. I'm not saying don't pray. But on the other hand, I'm not saying to pray either. That's, that's what he said. Meaning what? What is John saying? I don't think John is being cruel or fatalistic here. I think he's simply saying there's no guarantees. He's not saying don't pray. He's simply indicating that God doesn't offer the same absolute guarantee for unbelievers as he does for believers. You pray for a sinning believer, what's the answer from the throne? Yes is the answer. It's always yes. But John's just going to be real with us and remind us that prayers for unbelievers don't necessarily come with the same absolute promise and guarantee, right? We don't know if God's going to save them. Now, again, am I saying you don't pray for them? Nobody says that. Do still pray. You plead and you beg God to intervene and save them. And you never give up praying that. You never stop praying that. And you just trust the Lord to do what he has decreed is best. That's the scenario. And you see, not only do you never give up praying, and I close with this, but you also never give up preaching and pleading and offering people the banquet of eternal life, just as it was offered to me, just as it has been offered to you. And so the question is, in all seriousness, do you have a seat at the table? Do you have a seat at the table? Meaning, have you truly repented and yielded to Christ in hungry submission and faith? Have you done so? Do you recognize that you were made by God, for God, and yet your sins have separated you from God? And yet this very God incarnated himself as a human being. He came to earth in human flesh and died as sin, bearing death in the place of the very people who deserved to die. And this God is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So again, I ask you, I ask you, pleading with you, have you repented and yielded to Christ in hungry submission and faith? Because if not, let me tantalize you with Isaiah's summons that Adam read at the beginning. This is God through me offering the banquet. Everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Delight yourself by faith in Jesus Christ who bought for beggars like us a seat at the banquet of eternal life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful that you inspire, you have inspired hard texts. We dread the hard thinking that it requires. We dread the sweat that it will demand of us. But when we're done, we're so grateful that we have. And the Lord John has given us some real faith skills, some benefits of, of saving faith that are really helpful for us. And Lord, leading this church, I also stand at the front of the line telling you that I really need help with all these things. Well, there's so many inconsistencies in my life, so many things about eternal life that it should produce in my life and, and, and I'm not there. I need your help, Lord. I need your help and, and, and these people, your, 
your sheep, your flock. They need your help. We come to you as beggars. We come to you as beggars of grace, as spiritual cripples and and paraplegics asking you to to provide through your word what we need. We're asking you for help, Lord. And and we know, O Lord, because of this text that when we ask according to your will, you not only hear us, Lord, you give us what we ask. Unleash us, Lord, to pray like that. Unleash us to pray with that kind of boldness and courage. And may the transformation of our lives put your son on display for the treasure that he is. And it's in his glorious name we pray.